0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Space junk, fast and dangerous. I was standing with my back to the dinner party in the kitchen of a house in Walnut Creek, California, rinsing off my dish. The Australian physician and anti-nuclear campaigner, Helen Caldicott, had invited Bruce Gagnon and Carl Grossman from Space for Peace to Cher meal, and I was there to record for radio. Helen Bruce and Carl had for many years joined in campaigns to keep space free from weapons and nuclear material, and all had tried to prevent the launch in 1979 of the space probe Cassini to Saturn was 72 pounds of plutonium on board. Behind me, the conversation turned to a new topic, space junk. Bruce Gagnon was describing that of all the man-made objects in low-Earth orbit, 95% are space junk. Rocket thrusters, burned-out satellites, and, most of all, tiny fragments of debris from collisions and explosions. These pieces of junk in Earth orbit are flying at 17,000 miles per hour, and even a small bolt could break the observation window of the space station. Some of the junk falls down to Earth within a year or so, In high orbit, other pieces can remain hundreds of years, and more. And the debris proliferates, not only because so many more devices are being launched. When debris hits debris, the overall number of junked pieces rises exponentially. I rejoined the group at the table, glad to be among friends. I don't remember the date of the dinner, sometime in 2001. But I do remember the feeling one has when finding out that something is grotesquely insane and a growing danger remains to this day and that space junk is an environmental crisis that's almost completely invisible to most of us, even though it can already be observed in the night sky above. So here today is an update, since that dinner in Walnut Creek, the International Space Station had to be moved 29 times to avoid a catastrophic space junk collision, three times in 2020 alone. On July 4, 2021, a German think tank entitled Weltgruppe released a documentary Space Junk, Fast and Dangerous The Group is part of the German Media House, founded by the ultra-conservative media czar Axel Springer. It is such an interesting documentary because it is not done from an environmentalist perspective. The danger from space junk has become so daunting that industry and the military are becoming concerned but are also going ahead full blast with launches. The interviews with three scientists, Ulrich Walter, Metten, Tolan, and Manuel Metz, are conducted in German with English overdub, and I hope you get used to hearing the German voices faintly in the background behind the translation. Here's the opening part of the 50-minute July 2021 documentary space junk, fast and dangerous.
1: Our Earth orbit is filling up at an alarming rate. Nearly 6,000 satellites are now circling our planet. About half of them are dead and circle the Earth as space junk. Millions of pieces of debris are also hurtling alongside them in orbit. And the trend is increasing. Space junk can have devastating consequences. It threatens not only manned space travel, but also our satellite-dependent digital world.
2: Space junk is
1: and always has been a major topic.
2: How dangerous is space junk, actually? Under the current conditions, can we even continue to travel into space? Are our astronauts safe at all up there in the space station? One example, a particle measuring just one millimeter in diameter recently smashed into the pane of a module of the space station and damaged it. And I can assure you that had it been one centimeter in diameter, it would have caused a catastrophe.
1: The International Space Station circles the Earth at an altitude of about 400 kilometers. Its speed, 28,000 kilometers per hour. The orbit of the ISS is continuously monitored from the Earth, partly to avoid a collision with debris. But the object that damaged the pane of the observation cupola in 2016 was much too small to have been detected. Perhaps the fragment was just a splinter of metal or a particle of paint. A one centimeter particle, on the other hand, could have been life-threatening for the crew or at least caused serious damage to the
3: space station. Space junk in Earth orbit is dangerous for people on the International Space Station simply because it's moving at very high speed, 10 kilometers per second. So here's the thing, when something is moving at very high speed, even if it's very lightweight, its so-called kinetic energy is very high. The kinetic energy then becomes as high as the energy of multiple kilograms or even tons of explosives, and so you can understand how extremely dangerous it is just to collide with some little screw flying around out there.
1: In June 2011, an unidentified fragment crosses the path of the ISS. The object is detected too late to execute an evasive maneuver. The space station is evacuated. For safety, the crew boards the two Soyuz capsules. The object passes the space station at a distance of just 250 meters.
4: Normally, we try to detect the approach of such space junk well in advance. Sometimes, however, objects appear suddenly because they remain unseen for much too long. Examples of such objects include ones with very eccentric orbits, which cannot be measured very often, where the opportunity to measure them is very limited.
1: About twice a year, the ISS executes evasive maneuvers to avoid large debris or dead satellites. An evacuation into the Soyuz capsules is a genuine emergency. And even then, the crew members need enough time. The space station is at continuous risk of being hit, even though the debris in such low Earth orbits does not stay in space forever.
4: Service life in Earth orbit primarily depends not on the size of the object, but rather on its altitude. When I'm in the low range, in low Earth orbit, then I still have a residual amount of Earth's atmosphere there that has a breaking effect on my objects. In other words, atmospheric drag causes them to lose orbital energy and fall back to Earth as a result. So, as an order of magnitude, we say that an object placed at the altitude of the International Space Station, about 400 kilometers, will remain in orbit for one year. After that, it has left orbit. At 600 650 kilometers, there you have to expect a service life of about 25 years.
1: The available space around our planet is gradually becoming scarce. It is estimated that there are 35,000 objects in Earth orbit which are larger than 10 centimeters and no longer have a function. They represent the most dangerous segment of space junk. Observers on Earth know the orbital data concerning about 20,000 of those objects, but the further they are from the Earth, the harder they are to locate. These objects are monitored primarily by the U.S. Space Surveillance System, a network of telescopes and radar systems which continuously monitors Earth orbit. It is under the control of the U.S. Department of Defense, Established already in the early 1960s, that surveillance system is now part of the newly created United States Space Force, the space arm of the US Armed Forces. In the past, the Americans always provided the data to
4: us very reliably. We are currently in the process of developing the relevant competences in Europe, too. It's an SST program, or in other words, a tracking program. It's being financed chiefly by the European Union. And the ESA is also involved, of course, to also provide access to all the information collected. I think all this data should be made public. It's not secret data. We say it, but then we don't say where it's flying. Well, you can see that for yourself.
1: Of course, the governments of all countries want to know what objects are flying out there in space. That healthy curiosity originated during the Cold War. Intercontinental missiles travel a large share of their trajectory in space. They were detected with radar systems.
4: Systems that were originally designed to detect intercontinental missiles. From those systems, the first orbital data catalogs were then developed. And then for very high objects for geostationary Earth orbit, those objects out there were just detecting using telescopes. And it's actually true that there are certain objects whose orbital data are not published. But it's also only fair to say that most of those objects are in very low orbits. That means when they fall out of orbit, they disappear. And some of those objects also disappear from Earth orbit very quickly. That means we have to assume that those objects undergo controlled re-entry, for example.
1: Orbital data from Earth orbit are primarily recorded and published by the U.S. military, except for its own secret objects. But even the U.S. military is still unable to monitor dangerous, centimeter-sized debris.
2: In space, close to Earth, all particles have the same speed, roughly between 7 and 8 kilometers per second. That corresponds to 25,000 to 28,000 kilometers per hour. The question is, how much force does that represent on impact? I've brought along an example of such an impact site for you here. This is what it looks like. A one-centimeter ball has been fired into a massive block of aluminum right here. It's pretty heavy. Now, the question is, how can the International Space Station protect itself from something like that? An aluminum block like this is of no use at all. And the answer is, you have to use a trick, the so-called Whipple Shield the Whipple shield provides just enough protection against such impacts. For larger or faster particles,
1: however, even the Whipple shield won't help. The astronomer Fred Whipple invented the shield, which is designed to protect manned and unmanned spacecraft against debris and micrometeors. All endangered areas of the space station are fitted with such shields. The question is not whether the space station will be hit, but rather where, and how large the object is.
4: There's a gap in our knowledge of objects, ones we cannot see and whose orbit we cannot track. There are developments aimed at also monitoring such small objects, but there are huge technical hurdles to overcome, and I am receiving more and more measurements. At the moment, I have roughly 20,000 objects in the catalogue. When I go into the centimeter population, then I suddenly have 100,000 objects whose orbits I have to measure.
1: And then, when the fragments in the millimeter range are added, the number of debris particles rapidly grows to many millions. In February 2009, two satellites collided in orbit for the very first time. The defunct Russian Cosmos 2251 struck an Iridium communication satellite. A worst-case accident.
4: At first, the resulting debris continues flying more or less along the same orbit because it has such a high orbital velocity. The additional speed then imparted by such fragmentation causes the cloud of debris to expand over the course of time. This means that within a relatively short period of time, the cloud of debris is no longer compact. When I look again weeks or months later, then the orbits have begun to move apart from one another. That's called orbital drift, which means that the orbits that were once at the same orbital level continue drifting apart until after a few months or years, this debris is ultimately distributed throughout Earth's orbit in that orbit orbital region and at that altitude.
1: More than 3,000 detectable objects have been set free by the collision and are now careening around the globe, a tremendous danger for other satellites.
3: The available space that Earth orbit provides is actually smaller than it appears to be because only certain orbits are of particular interest. This is the so-called geostationary orbit, 36,000 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. When you place a satellite there, then it remains at that fixed point. The Earth then rotates exactly together with the satellite, and so you have a satellite that always stays over the same point. And it's particularly easy for you to communicate with that satellite. So that orbit is in especially high demand and should not be cluttered up with data. And then there are the orbits in which the International Space Station is located several hundred kilometers above the Earth. They're also of special interest because there's not really all that much room up there, considering the fact that every small screw represents a serious risk. So it seems like there's plenty of room, but in reality, there's not so much. Orbits around the Earth
1: are getting crowded. The near-miss collision of the U.S. space telescope Fermi and the defunct Soviet spy satellite Cosmos 1805 is further proof. Only by changing its orbit did Fermi manage to escape destruction by a Cold War relic. The old Soviet reconnaissance satellite missed the telescope by barely nine kilometers. The rescue maneuver used the rocket thrusters that will also propel the telescope into the atmosphere, to burn up at the end of its service life. We also have several thousand
4: out-of-service satellites flying around the Earth. And that's, of course, an issue when we consider space as infrastructure. And infrastructure all cluttered up with rubbish is not a good
1: one. Without communication satellites, Earth observation and weather satellites or navigation satellites, the digitized world as we know it today would no longer work. We have become completely dependent on data streams from space, even if we're not always aware of it in everyday life. Nowadays, satellites enable telephone conversations, television and the Internet. So every time you use your smartphone also involves aerospace applications. Today, the orbits around the Earth are an important and sensitive economic factor, one that every country tries to safeguard for itself. The new German space radar GESTRA, for example, will also provide for greater security in space.
4: A national system enables a country's own independent assessment capability. That means that we can use it, independently from other nations, to determine what's out there in space and whether danger threatens our satellites.
1: This state-of-the-art radar system comprises 256 separately controlled transmitters and receivers and can monitor objects in low Earth orbit around the clock. In that way, GESTRA provides continuously up-to-date situational awareness in space. But the acquired data are also added to the European Orbital Data Catalog.
4: The system is designed to monitor low Earth orbit. That means we can detect objects orbited at an altitude of between 300 kilometers and 3,000 kilometers. And the system itself is a so-called phased-array radar. Phased-array means that the direction in which we look need not be determined by the mechanical rotation of an antenna, but rather can be set up purely electronically. This enables us to search a large area in space in a very, very short period of time, laying out a search grid, with which we can then detect objects that fly through that search grid, and then we can track their orbit.
1: The radar is operated from the Space Situational Awareness Center of the German Armed Forces, and the system will also make it possible to achieve gradual independence from the U.S.-American Orbital Data Catalog. Every rocket launch leaves space junk in orbit, and the limited service life of satellites only makes matters worse. Depending on the altitude of their orbit, those defunct satellites then continue to drift in space for a very long time. The extreme conditions that prevail there cause materials to fatigue very rapidly. And as a result, many objects break up on their own into smaller fragments, which are in turn distributed around the globe, where they endanger man and unmanned spacecraft.
2: So, how was it back then with the space shuttle? Well, first of all, the space shuttle was much smaller than the space station and missions only lasted one or two weeks. And that's why, according to NASA, only one out of a thousand missions were at risk. And that, in turn, was the reason why the shuttle had no protection. NASA told us astronauts that if an object hits the shuttle, you'll just have to put on a pressure suit and return to Earth immediately. Of course, the shuttle did suffer impacts from time to time, but they were only very small
1: particles and therefore caused only relatively minor damage. The space shuttle was designed to be NASA's workhorse. The two space shuttles that Americans lost cost the lives of 14 astronauts. Though neither of those accidents was caused by space junk, the space shuttles were not invulnerable to debris hurtling through space. There were numerous near-miss collisions with objects in space, like this piece of junk that flew past the tail of the Atlantis on mission STS-43. Nor were small impacts rare. Hits like these in the flight deck panes of the space shuttle could have been fatal had the debris been a little larger extensive damage was documented during every routine inspection upon return from space. Especially after the missions involving the Hubble Space Telescope, which circles the Earth at an altitude of about 550 kilometers, numerous impacts were identified. The Hubble Telescope was transported into space in the cargo bay of the space shuttle Discovery and placed in orbit. Five more shuttle flights then returned to the telescope on repair and maintenance missions. And technicians regularly found a large number of impacts in the space shuttles upon return to Earth. And then, during a service mission in 2002, one of the solar modules of the space telescope was also replaced. The old collector was brought back to Earth, and the scientists found several thousand craters on it caused by space junk some of which measured several millimeters. Testimony to the serious risk of fast-flying particles orbiting at that altitude.
4: At 28,000 kilometers per hour, even small fragments can cause damage, of course. The film Gravity provided us with a very impressive depiction of that. This is a genuine risk that can endanger astronauts. It can also endanger the International Space Station. And with that in mind, we must do something to protect against both large and small objects. The issue must be taken seriously, very seriously.
2: Sonic Boom's announcing Discovery's arrival. It's now just 68 miles away from Kennedy Space Center.
1: The double sonic boom announces the return of discovery after a mission in Earth orbit. NASA's space shuttles completed a total of 135 space flights, And ultimately, it was pure luck that no third accident occurred, caused by a large enough piece of space junk crossing the path of the space shuttle. The internet site stuffin.space offers an amazing view of the Earth. Based on the U.S. orbital data catalog, the American programmer James Yoder creates a three-dimensional map showing all the objects in Earth orbit in real time.
2: Now let's see just what the space junk situation actually looks like. To do so, I have an app here that displays an animated graphic of scrap for me, debris from an American catalog of space junk. What do we see? We see different colored points. Red indicates active satellites, blue means broken ones, and these gray points are other debris. First of all, we see that most of the pieces are flying close to the Earth. so-called near-Earth space. Now, when I zoom out a little bit, then we get a better overview and we see that out here we have a string of pearls. Those are the geostationary satellites, and that means the active ones, all in red. But we also see that there's a sort of ring around the geostationary orbit, and that's all the ones that can no longer be controlled properly. So they leave this string of pearls. In addition, we see here a sort of cloud of satellites, which are somewhere in between. Those are the navigation satellites, of the Chinese and the Americans, but also the Europeans.
0: And now, what we'll do is,
2: we'll pick out any object at random. So I tap here on one of these points, this one for example, and we see a Cosmos satellite, a Russian satellite, launched in 2016, you can see that here. And here in green, you see its orbit. By the way, this red string of pearls that you see here, those are the brand-new Starlink satellites from Elon Musk. He recently sent them into space, and now they're circling the Earth
1: like a string of pearls. Starlink is a network of small satellites that Elon Musk's aerospace company SpaceX uses to provide high-speed internet from Earth orbit.
4: Starlink is Elon Musk's project to build a constellation. His is now the operation with the most proprietary satellites out there. It's really quite amazing. He has accomplished so much here. But Starlink did have two aspects that have to be taken into consideration. The first is that it's a constellation that places many, many satellites out in space, thereby also clearly raising the question of space junk. And the second is that Starlink obviously made them easy to see. And astronomers were not very thrilled about that.
1: Scientists are worried about their unobstructed view of space. Today's time-lapse recordings of the starry sky are already interrupted time and again by satellite clusters. And the Starlink constellations are clearly visible in the night sky, especially in the deployment phase. The Internet from space will be accessible around the globe. And it will require a huge number of mini-satellites. SpaceX has applied for launch approvals for up to 30,000 Starlink satellites in the next few years. New space. Clearly, the ever-increasing commercialization of space still has some surprises in store for us. The once ridiculed SpaceX idea of landing the first stage of a Falcon rocket autonomously for reuse has already become routine. This does not prevent space junk, however, because the upper stage of Elon Musk's rocket remains in space. It takes multi-stage rockets to reach Earth orbit, and the upper stages that remain in orbit are what actually cause the big problem. The real question
4: is, how do we
1: measure the risk?
4: How much debris can be created when an object is struck and disintegrates? And the upper stages are particularly significant here due to their large size and weight, because when a large, heavy object is struck, of course the impact produces a much higher number of fragments than when a small satellite is hit. So it might be an overstatement to say that there are very, very many upper stages, but the risk inherent in an upper stage like this, when struck by an object, that risk is clearly higher than with a small satellite.
0: That's all there was time for on this 29-minute broadcast slot. That was the opening section of the German documentary Space Junk, Fast and Dangerous, produced by the Weltgruppe. The Weltgruppe is part of the German Media House, founded with the estate of the ultra-conservative German media czar Axel Springer. Published on the YouTube channel of Welt on July 4, 2021, the documentary contains some of the most recent data and statistics. Come back when TUC Radio returns with more news about billionaires and even pirates in space launching without permission and the expansion of military and economic use of space. And how the 124 ton Russian Mir space station was taken down and destroyed. And who will take out the trash in the future? You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, TUCradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Mariah Geladen. Thank you for listening.